I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan coming to you on a cold but sunny fall day in the mountains of Utah. Welcome to part two of this week's two-part episode where I chat individually with a pair of co-authors, R.A. Salvatore and Erica Lewis, for the launch week of their new book, Color of Dragons. My second guest is Robert Anthony Salvatore. Bob is a longtime best-selling author of the Demon Wars saga and the creator of the beloved character Driss Duarden for Forgotten Realms. Most listeners even tangentially aware of epic fantasy will know Bob's name, And to that end, we start by chatting about the nature of fame. We also talk about Bob's controversial dip into Star Wars, when it's appropriate to kill a character, and his long-standing relationship with Forgotten Realms. Enjoy my conversation with Bob Salvatore. Looking through your bibliography, so I, I don't even mind saying, so you're probably the most famous person I've had in my podcast so far, and I've gotten some really cool people come on. Okay, well, then I'm leaving. <laughs> and, <laughs> but it's 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 funny to look through your bibliography because you are of, of kind of the of the people that I'm kind of aware of in this in my career and as you know a childhood reader of fantasy and stuff, your name is so like outsized does that even make sense it's just such a big presence in epic fantasy i've always felt that was the ob- the opposite really because i like as a reader you know some of my earliest books that my older brothers handed to me were r.a salvatore books and it's it's just it's so many books like you've you've spent well over 30 is it over 30 or over 40 just in the Forgotten Realms. It's nearing 40. Actually, with the Cleric Quintet, it's over 40. Yeah, it's over 40. It's almost 45, actually. Whew, that's that's insane. Yeah, but here's the thing, okay? Um, I, I've got the sales numbers. I mean, you know, I'm not, not trying to humble brag or anything, but I, I mean, I've sold a lot of books yeah. consistently for decades. But, you know, everybody, so many of my friends get movie deals, TV deals, all these other things, they, they, you know, I'm not in any of the organizations, so it's not like I win awards. I, I mean, I've won a few, but I'm not like in SIF or anything like that. And I've always felt kind of like the uh, kind of outsider. One thing, starting with TSR back when I did, the, the I call it the locust crowd, the New York crowd, yeah. hated us. They hated anything to do with us. Do you think that was because it was a, because it was a kind of work for hire sort of stuff or... Part of it was work for hire. Absolutely. And it was, uh, you know, I mean, my first agent told me not to take the deal with uh, TSR for the Crystal Shard in 1987. He said, yo, this, they're not, they're not going to pay you anything. The royalties are terrible. They're going to own it. You should never do this. And I said, I just want to be a print. I just want to be a published author. You know, I wrote my book in 1983. This is 1987. This was a different book um, that I had written that got me the gig, the audition for the Crystal Shard. And, and I'm like, I want to get my name in print. I mean, I, I work in finance. I'm going to keep my career going. I just want to get my name in print so I can kind of say, okay, I'm going to put this behind me. And But I did it, you know? And he's like, oh, I wouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. They're no good. And, da, 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 da. and I did it. And, you know, I remember, I'll never forget, like about eight years later when I was putting books two or three a year on the New York Times list up high, he called me up after I had long dumped him. And he called me up and he's like, I don't know what your new agent's getting you, but I know I can get you a lot more. And I just was like, you ass. And I hung up. <laughs> um, but I, I never felt, it, it always amazes me when I take it away from what I see to the personal. Like I'm up at Wizards of the Coast a couple of years ago before the plague for a meeting. And there's a guy in the building doing a Make-A-Wish game. And they introduced me to the guy. And he's like shaking and sweating when he meets me. He's like, oh my God, I love this. It was Pat Rothfuss. And I'm like, 
I'm like, how is this even possible? <laughs> you know, this is Pat Rothfuss. I'm like, I just met Pat Rothfuss. This is like awesome, right? Because I, I was never part of that crowd. I didn't want to be part of that crowd. And I'm not saying against against the writers in New York, but I came in, I came in with TSR. I found some of the best to this day, and I've worked with many of the biggest editors in New York. I put the TSR editorial staff, Mary Kirchhoff, Jim Lauda, Eric Severson, Phil Athens, and, and so many others, Nina Hess, Susan Morris. I put them right there with the editors I've worked with in New York. These are good people, good editors. But at the time, there was a real bias against it. And I understand it to some degree because a lot of books were getting big numbers from TSR and they, from New York, the attitude was... Well, it's because it's Dragonlance. It's because it's Forgotten Realms. It's because it's got that D and D brand, right? And you know, it gets it gets a little competitive sometimes. But I found it unfair. I mean, you know, Myra Weiss and Tracy Hickman have done a lot more than Dragonlance, and I've done a lot more than Forgotten Realms. But that's all behind us now. Yet I still have that kind of underdog, and I think that's a good thing. You, you got to understand this. I think this is a good thing personally. I have that underdog feeling. It's like I got to prove myself. And it makes me give a little more care to everything I do, I think. Yeah, it gives you an edge. I think that's great. Yeah. I, I, I Yeah, that's that's interesting because it does feel, I, I think from when I, even when I started, when I was in my, you know, 19, 20 saying, I really want to be an author. Uh, this is this is something that I'd like to do for a career. Uh, I, I remember kind of reading about kind of that weird division between the work for hire stuff and the... Uh, kind of traditionally published New York kind of thing, right? And it, it it's always struck me as a little bizarre because it because uh, there's a, some of my friends have no idea who most of the authors that I talk to and that I'm friends with and that I know uh, who uh, who their names are. But if you ask them about you know like Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms and all these other properties, they can tell you they've read every single book and they they know the authors, sure. they know the works, they know the characters. And it, it's it's a strange division because it's essentially the same you know field. It's not like it's a different you know part of writing. Yeah, but but it, it is and it isn't because there's also like different distribution deals that TSR and Wizards went through through New York publishers, so that books were considered trade, not mainstream. There's just there's just all these little you know. It's like if you look at the New York Times list, right? Nobody knows how that list works. Because the publishing industry has this kind of Byzantine, like opaque background to it, um, you know, and, and who gets the swag and who doesn't, basically. So I don't know. It, it's I just I remember the Boston Globe actually did an article when I was working with Thirty Eight Studios, and I think the title of it was something. I, I have it over there if I went and looked at it, hanging on the wall because that doesn't happen much around here. It's one of the things I kept, and it it's, it said. Um, the the Massachusetts the, the best selling Massachusetts writer you've never heard of that was the headline or something like that yeah and it's true so do you think that's true so I I have like a, a small obsession with like the kind of weird fame that authors have yeah it's weird fame that's true it's very bizarre fame because you can be you can walk you can obviously walk down the street and <laughs> probably nobody will have any idea who you are unless I'm at a convention. And then maybe a few people might notice. Right. But if you're at a convention, I'll see. But I like I, I feel like half the people at a convention would notice you. But but maybe I'm I, maybe I'm projecting because I grew up with fantasy. No, I, I don't know, because I'm kind of an oblivious person. <laughs> uh, but, it, but see, I still live in the hometown where I was born. Yeah. And I'm just Bobby out here. And then so I guess part of this is probably my own doing and that I don't really give a damn about. It, to be honest with you, and this drives publishers crazy, I don't give a damn about bestseller lists. Yeah. I don't give a damn about awards, and I don't give a damn about fame. I'm, I am I give a damn about making the people who enjoy my books feel like they got something that, they, that was worth their money when they buy my books, or worth their time if they borrow them from the library, or worth their time just to read them or listen to them on, on audio. That's all I care about in this. The rest of it is just, I don't know. I just never thought, I never think of myself in those terms, mm -hmm. you know? And it, it's funny because around here, I'm just the guy who coaches softball, plays softball, you know, coach the girls, softball team, coach the boys, hockey teams. 
That's all I am. I'm Bobby, right? And that's what I want to be. That's that's my life. This is real. Yeah, it's it's funny because because Robin Hobb said much the same of of kind of like uh, of of maybe being a tiny bit oblivious to her own fame. And I, I guess maybe that's interesting to me as a millennial because I, I look around at you know, colleagues and, and and people much younger than me who, uh, you know, now they have, they've got YouTube channels, they've got hundreds of thousands of people that you know watch their videos or watch them play games every single week, yeah. and and it's like real fame, and and it weirds me out to see authors who I who I know have sold tens of millions of books and. And whose names have been very familiar for me to me for a long time, uh, kind of not really not really engage in fame in the same in the same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I think part of that is authors. Most authors that I know, to some extent at least, are introverts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time alone. I, I have this big office that's very empty most days, except for me, um, because it's my job. So you know, and I, and I think. It was very hard for me when I first started going out to like conventions to not like just freeze up because I'm like, I was, I was the shyest kid in high school. I had to train myself not to be shy. And it, it was a long process. So I, I think that's part of it. But, you know, the authors I do see who engage on social media usually get themselves in more trouble than not because authors are supposed to push the, we're supposed to challenge people and challenging people on social media leads to fights. So, but we're supposed to, that's our job. The job of art is to challenge. It's not just to entertain. It's to make you think. Um, but I, so, you know, I, I, I get that, you know, should I be on critical role playing? I'd love to be a guest on critical role someday, but should I, should that be my career? Oh, I'm not that guy. Yeah. I'm not that guy. Um, that's a different talent. So, you know, really, I don't really care about it that much. I don't really care. I care about my grandkids. I care about the readers who write to me. I care about the people who show up at my book signings. I care about the conventions I go to. I care about making sure that my editors are happy and doing well. Because <laughs> then I'm happy and doing well. Well, it's great because it's it's. I think it's good to focus on that human element. You know, like you like you're saying about the fans and about you know, am I writing things that people that is worth their time, that's enjoyable to them. It makes them happy or it makes them think or or engages them in some way that's positive. Well, I, I guess I just have a different view of, you know, successful than a lot of people put into the world today. I remember when after I had left my job, I was working at a wonderful company called Genrad. Um, and I left my job in 1990. Well, my brother was there. My brother's the one that got me in. He's a few years older than, than I am. And then I went back to see him at work. I went to see all the guys. I hadn't seen them in a few years. And we we're out in the parking lot and another one of the guys was there and he, and when Gary and I were walking in and he came up and he, he wanted to bust on Gary. So he said, Hey Gary, how's it feel? Your little brother's so much more successful than you are. And I just laughed, yeah. I, but I thought it was like the stupidest thing I'd ever heard because my brother Gary could walk into a room and be the center of attention. He was just, he just had this charisma about him. You know, he, he, when he died back in 99, he died of cancer. I, the line for his funeral and for his wake was like miles long and grown men were like sobbing for days. His office shut down. That's successful. That's how I measure. To me, it's like if you smile the most and have the most people who care about you when you're dead, then you win. Although you're dead, but <laughs> then you've lived a good life. Right. I, I don't, I don't measure it the way that so many people, how many, how many likes did you get? give a shit. You know, how many views did that video get? Well, got a lot, but you know, Benedict Cumberbatch read it. So of course it got a lot, you know, that type of thing. (laughs) That's, that's not me. That's not who I am. I'm not the red carpet guy. I don't want to be. Do you think it's been good for you as a, for you personally, as a person to kind of be forced to extrovert a little bit? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I have a lot more fun now. (laughs) I have a lot more fun now. I mean, I didn't have a date in high school. Yeah. I wouldn't ask anyone out. And then I, I, I went to like my 20th reunion and the, the girls that I was like falling down over didn't have the courage to even talk to her. Like, how come you never asked me to that dance? And then my wife is like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it, it is. Um, yes. Yes. I, I, I have been able to widen my experience intake. It, my comfort zone has widened. So that makes it easier for me to get on a plane and go somewhere interesting. It makes it easier for me to see, to make new friends when we're, we're out eating and people sitting next to it makes me easy, you know, a table next to us makes it easier for us to engage if they got a dog, right? We go and eat down the pier and 
California and all the outdoor seating, everybody's got dogs, right? We see the dog. I, I can talk to them now and play with their dog and maybe feed them under the table when they're not looking, that type of thing. I could never have done that before, you see, because I, I was afraid of myself. I was afraid of the world. That's, it wasn't just that I was an introvert because I'm not that much of an introvert. It's that I was shy. So yeah, this is, this has made my life so much more interesting and enjoyable. And, and especially like when I have to perform. Yeah. Like I miss the conventions now. I dreaded them for years, but I trained myself. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think, I think that being forced, maybe not being forced to do things all the time that you hate, but being forced to expand your comfort zone. I think it's probably very good for a lot of people like, like us that kind of work in this very solitary kind of environment. Um, you know, like you said, we're just alone for most of the time. Yeah. And you know, like I gave uh, about 10 years ago, I gave the convocation, uh, the, the commencement speech. I gave the con- commencement speech at my alma mater. I could never have done that. That's one of my, my favorite memories, you know? Yeah. And, and there's so many like that now. So, yeah, it, no, it was a very good thing for me to be forced. You know, I, I always, my best friend's uh, Jewish, and, and my wife's best friend is his sister, who also is Jewish. They both, have, they both have fairly big families. And, of course, we went to all the bar mitzvahs and bar mitzvahs and all of that. We went, we, you know, they, they included us into their culture a little bit. And one thing that I always really loved, and this is the same thing when my son went to, one of my, my, my younger son went to a private school, and they make the, the young men and women get up in front of the assembly and put themselves out there. And they do it repeatedly. They make them get up and they make them give a speech. They take them out of their comfort zone until that becomes their comfort zone. And I think that's good for people. I think that's good for people. Now, some people, you know, this is different than being like, I have a sister who is a complete introvert, but she's really happy being an introvert, you know? She, she like COVID to her was like the best excuse she ever had to never leave her house, but she's really happy. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But for someone like me, I was always gregarious with people I was close with, but too afraid to be gregarious with people I wasn't. So I guess introvert's the wrong word. I was just shy. Yeah. I, and I, I feel that very much that kind of very much my own experience of, when I, when I was young, until I, honestly, until the last four or five years as becoming kind of a successful author, I just, I always struggled with uh, talking to people that I didn't know already. Uh, people that I knew already uh, never been really a big problem, but just so shy. Yeah, but you know, another part of that, Brian, is that once you become a successful author, in other words, you now have a little bit of cred, right? Yeah. So like I can go to Gen Con and get up on the stage and my, my act is, is always a little shtick, a little comedy in it. And people will laugh because they're giving me the benefit of the doubt because I get the cred. You know what I mean? Whereas if I was just a guy up on the stage saying the same thing, they'd probably be like, yay. Right. <laughs> but because because you bring the cred that allows you to gain more confidence because people will laugh at your jokes. I mean, it's not that they're not funny because I think I'm pretty funny when I want to be. Too often I'm funny when I don't want to be, which gets me in trouble. But <laughs> the ability to have the audience like be engaged with you. When the minute you walk in there and you're introduced, right, just feeds back on itself and giving you more confidence when you're. Out. Yeah, it really does. It's a uh, it's amazing because I I always looked at those people who seemed to succeed because of their ability to work a crowd and to be able to glad hand and all that stuff. Um, I was always very jealous of them. There is a level of pride being able to come at that from the other side of saying I became a person that could do that. Because I succeeded in a different way. When you get up on stage with someone who was born to be on stage, the talent, that person, I mean, it is incredible to watch. It just just the way they can handle it is like, wow, truly impressive. It's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Hey, Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer, or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Now, so I, uh, I, I don't know. I think 
looking back through kind of your Twitter, oh, uh, you seem to have a you seem to have a a complicated relationship <laughs> with the Star Wars books you wrote. Not really. I have fun with it now. I, I, I'm really glad you do because I was looking at it from both my 19 uh, year old perspective because that's so actually no it would have been my 15 year old perspective so i was 15 when uh what was vector prime yeah that came out 1999 october 5th 1999 yeah and and i don't mind saying i was furious with you yeah i've heard that <laughs> and but but like reading about it and especially kind of coming at it from an author's standpoint um it's really it's, it was really interesting to kind of revisit that this morning uh, because looking at it, you know, you come in with, you know, a new kind of era in Star Wars. You're the first book to come out and they tell you to kill a main character after I sign the contract and do the outline. Right. So it's- they give me a check. Yeah. OK. <laughs> I'm sure that was completely an accident. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Sue Ross Stoney, <laughs> <It's- laughs> who I love dearly, by the way. I, I have so much like I have so much more like you know sympathy and empathy for that now as an adult, uh, and it's it's fascinating to look at that and see how you know it's been twenty two years and see how it still comes up for you in like your Twitter timeline, yeah, fairly consistently. Yeah, is that something you look back on and you're kind of like, oh, this is a pain in the ass? Not anymore. But I did. For, no, no. Because here's the thing. It, it was a lot more complicated than it sounds like. OK. Yeah. I was supposed to begin my book tour on the day of the release of Vector Prime at the Barn, uh, the Borders at the World Trade Center. I think it was a Borders at the World Trade Center in New York. I had to cancel the tour because the day the book was released was the day of my brother's last MRI. My brother was my best friend in the world. He was my mentor or in my life, not with the writing, but with everything else. Ten days after, or I see, I don't even remember the date now. Wano, but about about a week and a half later, he died. Vector Prime comes out. Chewie dies, and now I've got to deal with people who are sending me death threats because the words on a page said a character was dead. And even though I I don't just look at characters as words on a page at that time, it all seems so trite to me. Um, but I knew it wasn't to them. But I was having a real hard time digging up empathy mm-hmm. about a fictional character when I was burying my best friend and it was miserable and it got, it got pretty ugly because I mean, it got to the point where there were people going around Amazon and other places just trashing every book I had ever written with some of the most horrible reviews you've ever seen just, just to get me back. And it was something I had resisted. I didn't even want to do it. So I felt victimized, but I wasn't, I agreed. I did the book, but there was so many emotions that were just not good. And, you know, it took me about two years after Gary died to actually enjoy even beginning to write again. It was a deep depression for me. And I mean, to the point where my wife finally said, look, you need to stop this. You cannot live like this anymore. Um, And so Vector Prime was kind of unfairly, but ultimately tied to that. The two books I did during that time period were Mortalis, which is the favorite thing I've ever written mm-hmm. for me, uh, the fourth book in Demon Wars, which is all about grief. I mean, Mortalis was my catharsis that got me through it. And Vector Prime, which made my life a living hell at that time, where I was much less able to handle what was happening. Having said that, I got to work with fantastic people. Yeah. You know, uh, Mike Stackpole was there the whole time for me. Um, I got to work with Sue Rostoni and Lucy Wilson and Shelly Shapiro and, and George Lucas, because now I'm get, now that I got to do Attack of the Clones. And, and I value that tremendously. So, yeah, I, I'm not conflicted about it. I, I still think maybe we shouldn't have done it I, because I think it hurt people. And I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want my writing to hurt people. I want my writing to make people think. I want my writing to make people feel like they have support. I want my writing to make people think that they're not alone. I want my writing to help people through grief, not cause it. You know what I mean? So I'm still on. I am still conflicted about whether or not we should have done the book. And I think there are a bunch of people that say you shouldn't have. And a bunch of people say, no, they had to do it. I'm still conflicted about it. But having said that, he's a Disney princess now. So we're all okay. (laughs) And Peter Mayhew was okay with me. So that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I miss him too. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. 
do you feel like so it, it's become kind of uh as, at least in my experience during my kind of shorter career here uh it's it's a fad to kill your main characters it's a you know to to say oh well nobody's safe it's kind of the game of thrones effect sure looking at that kind of thing do you do you think that it's do you think maybe it goes too cynical? Do you think there's something more innocent about, you know what, all my heroes are going to reach the end and I don't give a shit what you think? I I, I, I go both, um, again, I'm not conflicted on this, but I think books serve different purposes. Like, I don't think we had to kill Chewie, but I think I had to kill the main character of my first Demon Wars trilogy. So, And I think it depends on what you're writing and the mood of what you're writing. Now, in the Dritz books, I committed the cardinal sin, and I brought four people back, right? And that's one of my favorite books I've ever written. You're not supposed to do it. So what did I do when I did it? I had one come back and just to continue what she knew she had to do and to help the, the man she loved in his, his fight with the demon Loth. I had another one come back determined not to be a tag-along anymore because they came back with full consciousness of their previous life as babies. So from the crib on, he was working his dexterous little fingers to learn how to be the best little scout thief rogue he could be, right? I had a third come back pissed off because he felt like coming, but he answered the question. If I can, if I can be resurrected, then my whole life was a joke. My sacrifice meant nothing. And I had him come back and do that. And I had the fourth come back and say, well, I already did the life of duty. Now I'm just going to have fun, right? So I got to explore all those different things and I loved it. So, but yes, I do think this idea of gritty because you got to kill everybody is bold. On the other hand, it depends on what you're writing. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize George for doing that. I did the same thing in Demon Wars, right? But I'm not sure that, for example, the Dritz books have that same purpose, right? Yeah. I'm not sure if Chewie had that same purpose. You know, when I get a letter from a kid saying that, you know, I didn't have any friends in high school but I found your books and Dritz and Caddy Brain, Bruno and Wolfgang Regis became my friends. Great. Read the new one. I killed your friends. Woohoo. Right. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So I, I think they have different purposes. What are you trying to accomplish with your work? And sometimes I'm trying to accomplish the, the necessity of sacrifice and the, for the greater good the, and the ultimate movement toward the greater good. And other times I'm trying to give people a road of adventure. They can follow their friends along. So I'll handle that differently in the two series. And then in the Dritz books, I think the, the trick is, I'm not saying none of them are going to die because that would be a lie, as you'll see next year. None of the, none of the, but there's a lot of characters now that I can kill for impact. I've widened, added so many characters around him that I can just here or there without really, in, I couldn't remember how to spell his name, so I killed him. You know, it's that... <laughs> So, you know, what's the purpose? Things should have a meaning and a purpose. I think, I think Game of Thrones is very nihilistic. Yeah. I think, by, um, but by design. I think it's also a warning as to where we are now if we're not careful in the world, as a world society, in the fight between authoritarianism and democracy around the world that's been going on. So, you know, kudos to George. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I, I kind of, I love that perspective. I love that kind of you know, depends on what you're doing, what you're trying to do and where you're going with it. Is there a reason you are killing a character? Is it to shock the readers? No, you can shock readers in better ways than killing a character. Maybe. Now, maybe when you have a long running series, like the Star Wars thing, this is why I say people go back and forth on it. One thing I do know is when, when Chewie got it, people were reading the subsequent books very differently than they read the last 20 before Vector Prime. I bet. And maybe that was just you had to bring the tension back somehow. Right, because there was at that, gosh, that, there must have been, I, I can't even imagine, you know, 60 or more Star Wars books at that point. Oh, I think way more than that. I don't you know, between. Over 100? I mean, I think Kevin Anderson probably did 50, <laughs> right? Because he did all the, well, he did all the smaller books, the, the young adult books. He, he did. Yeah, the, the Young Jedi Knights. I ate those things up. Yeah, I mean, Stackpole did a bunch. Tim did a few. But they had so many writers. Yeah. Uh, it's just an amazing, you know, galaxy far, far away they created. Yeah. yeah and I've, I've talked to Michael a little bit about it. Like, I just, like, that was my teenage years. It was I just reading everything Star Wars. And it was, yeah. it was so fun. And sometimes they were super weird. And sometimes they were, you know, long series. And sometimes it was a single one-off book. And 
I, it was fun to watch them kind of experiment. But that's the realms. That's Dragonlance. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. I mean, you don't read the same story over and over and over again. I like one of the reasons, one of the things I keep every time I'm on a phone call with wizards, the first thing I say to them is, will you please bring back a forgotten realms book line? <laughs> you know, other voices doing different things. Cause I'm kind of in a mold here. I can't really stray too far without really ticking people off. You get, you get locked in, you know, if they know you for, for playing a character on a TV show, it's hard to go play a different character. Yeah, you've been typecast as an author. Absolutely. And there are worse things, by the way, than being typecast as an author of a very, very successful series. <laughs> <laughs> there are worse things than that. Does it does it ever kind of get onto your nerves or do you are you pretty at peace with it? Sure. I'm at peace with it, but there are times like I remember when my, when I got this I got this terrible review for one of the Demon War books and I didn't agree with it at all and it was like the only one and my editor actually said to me, I wish I could have sent them this manuscript without your name on it. Yeah. And I was like, why? And they said, because they, they missed everything because they weren't looking for it because they know you for dressed. Right. So they were just looking for a, for a kind of an interest, maybe an angsty, introspective, but singular adventure. And meanwhile, this book had webs all over the place and dozens of characters that mattered to the plot, but it didn't get, you know, she was convinced they didn't read it the way they would have read it if it had been a different name on the book. Yeah. And things like that happen all the time. You got to roll with them. I mean, the newest book that came out, my biggest regret about Starlight Enclave is that it was given away before the book came out. Plot. I did not want people to know what that book was about until the heroes of the book found what it was about. But because it was put out before that, it became the subject of all this controversy and that was nonsensical. And most of the people, the things they were complaining about, if that hadn't been mentioned and they just read the book, would have loved it. I think most people did anyway. Uh, but you know what I mean? It, it's like you see those kind of things. It's like when I did, um, which book was it? It was um, Passage to Dawn. And the Walden did their special covers for the books because they had those little raised 3D. Remember those on the hardcovers? Yeah. And they had Wolfgar on it. Now, the people who read Passage to Dawn with the other version where you couldn't tell who it was behind Dritz thought it was Zachnafane coming back from the abyss, not Wolfgar. But the people who read it seeing Wolfgar on the cover didn't, the ending didn't have the impact that it had for the other people. You see what I mean? Yeah. It was kind of, you, you gave the, you gave the, it's like one of the things I hate now is when you see the previews for a movie or a TV show, and it gave away the whole thing. Yeah, the whole film in two and a half minutes. Yeah, you get more clicks when you do that on the preview, but you ruin the experience. Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating how even even for books, how the tiniest bit of marketing can you know kind of ruin a climax. You know, ruin a ruin the you know. Ruin- well, I wish I wish we could have waited for the website, the um, yeah, particularly the website, but some of the interviews until after the release. Yeah. But they had other things coming out. They had all the all the statues and the swords and the video game and everything else coming out and they wanted to get up ahead of this whole drought thing you know yeah so they had other needs than i did i'm not mad at them for it yeah i am a little mad at them for it i told them a little bit <laughs> don't do that but the you know it is what it is you roll with the punches right do you think that the kind of that meeting of art and the business of art is just something you have to get used to as an author of course it's a business i don't write i, I don't i write for me I publish because they give me enough money so I don't have to get a job and I can write for me. It's two different things. Being a writer and being a published author are two completely, there's Bob Salvatore, the writer, and R.A. Salvatore, the businessman, because you got to be. Absolutely. Two different things. The needs are different. And it's like if somebody's going to adapt your work, well, you have to give them leeway. You have to give them license. I know this very well. A video game has a different needs than a novel. A movie has different needs than a novel or, or more limited means to get into characters' heads. And you can't have a cast of thousands in a movie. Nobody will care about any of the characters. In a book, you can have a bigger cast because the people have more time with it. So, you know, yeah. the medium the medium is the message, right? The old Marshall McLuhan thing. And you have to be able to adapt to that, especially now where that medium might be, we need a Twitter ad campaign. We need to do this short with Benedict Cumberbatch, Sleep Sound. We need to you know, we need to do these figures. We need to do these swords. we got a video game coming. There are so many more things surrounding the orbit of a book now. You have to roll with it. You have to understand that 
the people you're dealing with have different needs to get their paycheck than you get to get your than you need to get yours. Yeah, definitely. It's a business. Now, do you have you found kind of the way that way that the business works kind of especially with your work for hire stuff with Forgotten Realms, has that changed over the last 30 years or has it remained pretty consistent? Well, the business has changed tremendously. The business is, is it's a very different business. I mean, my backlist now, my audio books are like much bigger percentage. Yeah. Just the audio has changed the business, you know, tremendously. Uh, the, the other thing is, and I think it's still changing and still evolving because, you know, when I first started, you had to get out there and get on the road and you had to go hit, I would fly, I would get up at, I would get into my hotel after a book signing, like at 11 at night, try to get some dinner because I didn't want to eat before I was on stage for three or four hours, right? Then get to sleep, get up at like seven in the morning, get to the airport, fly to the next town where I'd be picked up by a media escort who would take me to check into the hotel and drop the bags. Then we'd go out and we'd hit, we'd go to a mall and we'd hit a Walden's, a B. Dalton's, a Borders, a Barnes and Noble, maybe a media play books a million, whatever. We'd hit all the bookstores. And in a day, I'd hit 10 to 13 bookstores and they know we were coming. So they'd have like 40 books on hand for me to sign yeah. of the new one. Plus they'd have all the backlist. So my whole day I would spend, I would sign hundreds and hundreds of books. Then I would go to my book signing, yeah. right? I'd go, maybe get a light dinner and then go to the book signing, get back to the hotel, eat a little bit more, get up the next morning and do it the next day. They don't do that anymore. First of all, there aren't enough bookstores to make it worth it. Even if the bookstore wants you, you can have a good event. You can't hit the 13 stores be before it because they're just not that many anymore. And the other thing is they used to stock like a week's supply of books. Now they do like a day because mm-hmm. they get shipments every day. So when I would go into a store with a new release, they'd have 40, 50 books. Now they have six. So all of that's changed. All of the dynamics of that have changed, which is why conventions have become a godsend to authors. Yeah. You go to a convention, you can you can move a lot of books and meet a lot of people all at once. And you don't have to get on a plane every day, which is awesome. Um, but then in addition to that, the advances are nowhere near where they used to be for books. The initial printing is nowhere near where it used to books. When I was getting on the New York Times early, you had to, you had to sell about 100,000 hardcovers, 70 to 100,000 to get on the list at all. Yeah. Now, no, you just need pre-orders to get on the list. It's, it's just everything has changed. Everything has changed. And, you know, you, you adapt or you die as an author. Uh, how, how have things changed for you in, on kind of the business side, on, on working with your publisher and doing work for hire? And kind of because you seem, you seem, at least as far as I can tell, you seem fairly unique in that you've been able to kind of keep a grip on this, on this character and this world that you've been working on for very consistently for your three decades. Yeah. Uh, and that does not seem with work for hire, especially your know, characters, worlds, they jump hands all the time. And it, I'm kind of amazed that you're still writing for them after so long. Yeah. So am I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 34 years since I signed that contract. Yeah. Um, the first contract, but here's the thing. I understand business. I understand, like we talked earlier, people have different needs. The best words in business are mutually beneficial. Mm. I have grabbed little by little, way more control over what I do and what we do with it than the average work for hire author. Baby steps, baby steps. And they agree because they know I'm going to, if they need something, I am going to agree back. Yeah. In other words, they know I'm not putting them over a barrel. There's a, there's a lot of trust between me and Wizards of the Coast. And there's a lot of trust that's been earned over a lot of years from TSR on. Mm-hmm. We, 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 we genuinely like each other. Um, you know, this is a very different, first of all, now it's not even really, it's, it's, it's more like I'm licensing my character and going to a different publisher to publish the books. Instead of Wizards paying me, I'm paying them a licensing fee. Yeah. And I can't get into any of the details because that gets confidential, obviously. Right. But I license the characters and they let me go to Hopper or put it out there. And Harper is where I chose to be Harper Voyager. And now they have, I want them to edit the book as well. Mm-hmm. I want them to look at it and make sure I'm still on the same page with what they're doing in the realms thematically, uh, morally, all the rest of it, because I don't want to diverge from the realms at all. So they get the book when my editor gets the book and they have as many people read it and come back to me as they want. 
and I listen to everything they say as if they're my editors. Now, this was something I couldn't necessarily find anywhere. Do you own Drist? I can't talk about stuff like that. I really can't. Fair it's enough. It's very complicated. <laughs> yeah, totally understand. It's it's just kind of cool to see something that uh, with an industry that has changed, like you said, so much over the last, I mean, even just the last 10 years. Uh, it's really cool to see something that has continued to be consistent. At least the public face of it has been very consistent for that long. It's, it's been very consistent, even in the production of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I mean, I will tell you that, you know, Wizards can go and license GameStop to Dritz without talking to me. If they do a movie, I get whatever say they let me have in it, right? It's not like I go and sell a movie or anything like that. So, you know, I don't think much has changed in my relationship with the publisher. Uh, well, actually, they're not the publisher, but now the, the licensor. We have the same kind of relationship we've always had. Um, but there's a reason for that, that, that that's important to me. Because here's where I'm at with Dritz now. And I have been for many years, okay? For years, you want people to go down the road of you want First of all, you want someone to read your book. Your first book comes out. You want, people, you want to get people to read it, right? You want enough hooks. You want it to be fun. You want it to get a good reviews. You want people to read it. You reach a point with Dritz, with me where my primary goal was that I want someone who picks up that book now, because I'm very aware of the fact that even though I'm bringing in new readers every year, young readers every year, a lot of them are the kids of the people who've been reading the books, right? Yeah. I want someone who sat you. I want you to read my new book, and I want you to feel the same way you felt when you read the first one. I want you to go back nostalgically, wistfully to that the, high school or college or junior high or wherever you were when you read The Crystal Shard or Homeland or whatever it was and have that same feeling of adventure and this wide world in front of you where it's complete escapism from the crap around you, right? That's what I want. I want the Dritz books to be consistent thematically. Um, I want them to be, I want a parent who read the books when they were 10 and now want their kid to really to trust that their tenure, it's okay for their 10-year-old to read the new Dritz book, okay? I'm not going to put gory scenes and explicit sex scenes in the Dritz book. I'm not going to do it. It's safe for your kids. I want it to be. But I want the 50-year-old to, who reads the Dritz book to feel like the, he was 16 or she was 16 when they read the first Dritz book. Oh, that's very cool. That's a very cool attitude to take toward them. I love that. I want to be the time capsule back to a better time in people's lives with the Dritz book. Yeah, that's my primary goal at this point. Oh, see, I, I absolutely love that attitude. That's so great. That's what they do for me when I'm writing. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There was one question I wanted to ask you about it, about whether about whether working on a single character in a single world for so long, do you, are you burnt out at it? Do you get burnt out? I am slowing down. I am. I'm slowing. My brain doesn't like, I used to be able to sit down and go, boom, and write thousand words like that. Yeah. And I'm old. My brain leaks now. And I, I get distracted more easily. You know, I'm not, I'm not a kid anymore. I was 29 when I started this. I'm 62 now. And um, they still play softball. <laughs> but but uh, no, I, I mean, when, when I get rolling on the book, when I get, you know, Dritz trying to figure out, okay, what now? You know, after the experiences he's had in the more recent books where he's kind of seen 
he's not sure, but he thinks he knows what's next for him. Yeah. How does he get excited about what's now for him? So these are a lot of things that I think, you know, I was 29 when I started writing him and I'm 62 now. My outlook on the world is very, very different. So I just want his to kind of parallel. So it's almost like I'm writing a journal. It's not that I'm writing, I'm him. Yeah. I wish I had the courage to be him. I don't. <laughs> and, but I, he makes mistakes that I wouldn't make because I know what's going on in other places and he doesn't in, in his world, you know. But all the characters, as they age, I'm much more aware of how their lives will change, how their outlook on the world will change because mine has. So someone like Adam Centreri, when he finds out a few books ago that there's going to be a price to be paid and it's of his own making, when he realizes that it's all of his own making, that he was self-deluding himself into thinking that he wasn't an evil jerk, that only then. Can Adam Centreri begin to look in the mirror and not loathe what is looking back at him? I couldn't have written that when I was 29. That's interesting. I I do think kind of in my private moments, I I spend a lot of time thinking about what my career is going to look like in 20 years, what what the works I work on is going to, how they're going to be perceived, how I'm going to perceive them. And, and it's interesting to hear you talk about kind of that, that growth of, of character, especially applied to a, a single character that you've been writing for so long. Yeah. Um, and, and do you think that it reflects also in kind of your standalone and your, your other worlds, kind of the, the growth that you've had as an author? Um, sure. I hope it does. <laughs> I don't know how to go beyond that. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that very much makes sense. I, I also sometimes I, I kind of have to assume that you are you're at an age where you kind of think about is there a moment that I retire? Do I keep writing until you know I slump over? Is, is that something that is kind of on your mind? Those are two different questions. <laughs> Retirement for me will be when I have no more deadlines. Yeah, and then after I write the book, I sell it or self-publish it. Who knows? Whatever. But after write the books without the deadlines. I don't know when that's going to, I'm not ready for retirement yet, um, but I'll be writing until I no longer capable of writing. That could be when they put, when they close the lid, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but it's two different questions. Right now I'm trying to find a better life balance between being a writer and being a grandfather and, you know, having to work and having to keep myself in somewhat of shape so I can still play softball and do the things I want to do with my grandkids. But that's different. And so it's all a different question to me. Retirement, if that means I'm not going to write anymore, I, I don't know how I would live. I don't know how I would live because I find moments when I'm writing of like, I get into a zone less now than when I had started because I'm older and my brain leaks. But I get into this zone where it's more exciting than playing a video game. It's more exciting than playing a softball game, even in the last inning of a tie game, where it's like so satisfying as the, as the plot, the, as the answers to all these conundrums you've you've created just kind of flow out and begin, begin to come together. Yeah. The excitement I feel is like, it's indescribable. It's a part of who I am. Your brain's moving faster than your fingers can get the words down. Oh, it's in smokes coming off the keyboard. It's crazy. Yeah. And and those moments are, I cherish. So I'm not going to stop that. Why would I? Oh, that's, that's cool. I like that. What do you, what do your kids think about your career? Because we have to admit that this is a weird career <laughs> because you're, you're a tiny bit famous, but also not really known, yeah. but you, you write books, you're self-employed, but you kind of have a boss, but you kind of don't. Uh, three different responses from three different kids. They have their own lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're be- all becoming very successful in what they want in their life. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know that any of them read the new books. Um, we don't really talk about it much. Sometimes Gino will work with me on something. I have uh, little tasks that come up and Gino is still available now and then to work with me. Brian did that a few years ago, but now he's really busy with a, with a really high powered job that he loves. Um, yeah. So it's, it's Katie is the one that always is like, why don't you understand how successful you are and famous you are and you know katie is um she's kind of like my little my little life coach there sometimes so it, it's just different we're just a regular family yeah we're just a regular family you know when i'm when i go to family functions and people start talking to me about my books i try to get off the subject as fast as possible because especially if it's somebody's birthday party 
or if it's awake for somebody that died, right? And they, oh, I love your new book. Like, yeah, that's not why we're here, you know? Um, so it, it, it's not a big part of my day-to-day life, except when I'm right. Yeah, I, I found I found that that whole that family dynamic of you know, especially extended family I don't see too often. I find that very complicated because I fall into the trap of occasionally loving to talk about myself. But I've I, as I get a little older and a little more experienced, I realize that it's not appropriate in a lot of situations. Oh God, I'll tell you all about my D and D games and my softball games and stuff. It's just the writing part because that's again there's Bob Salvatore and there's Ra Salvatore. And when we start talking about my books, it's R.A. Salvatore. But I don't want R.A. Salvatore in my family. I want Bob Salvatore. That totally makes sense. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> no, it, it definitely does. I, I like. I, I think that that separation is kind of important, especially in terms of what we do. I mean, there have been a couple of there have been a couple of awkward moments with my kids where you know they have a party and people show up because they want to meet me, and that's awful. Yeah, but not like real celebrities go through where their entire life has to be guarded. You know, it's not paparazzi outside my house or anything like that. I've seen that with some people I know and it's awful. I could never have a life like that. I would wind up in jail for killing someone. I'm sure. I'm sure <laughs> that's, that's not who I am. That's not, that's just not how my body, my brain interacts with the world. Now I, I'd be totally remiss before we run out of time here to not mention the book that you, it w- will be out when this airs. Um, so you've got color of dragons is color of dragons yes it's it's a standalone that you co-wrote now i couldn't see that you've done a ton of co-writing over your career uh only with my son until this yeah and i and i was curious because i i did i talked to erica for this podcast yep. and the the her episode will go out the same week um i kind of i i kind of love this idea of getting both perspectives of how kind of that co-writing thing uh, how did you enjoy it? How did it differ from kind of the work that you've done with work for hire, where you have, you know, a little, a, a bit of structure that's been, you're, you're told to follow versus actually collaborating with another person. Well, first the work for hire work that I've done, the structure was basically, this is the magic system of the world. These are the gods of the world, which I don't even need to use and don't uh, go write a good book. There's no structure. Yeah. The only structure I've had in that regard was doing, Vector Prime and Attack of the Clones, because mm-hmm. in that one, that was true work for hire. I mean, there was, I was given a, a lot of leeway on Vector Prime, but I had to hit the beat points. Yeah. Attack of the Clones, I wasn't given much leeway at all because it was, I was following a screw's novelization. So those two in the Tarzan novelization I did for that old cheesy TV show were very different. But my Dritz books and my, my non work for hire books, Demon Wars and Sword of Bedware, um, Crimson Shadow books and Spear Wielder's Tales, those books, the, the process for me has been very similar. Mm-hmm. The only difference with Demon was I had to create the magic system and the societal system in the land and have all the boundaries set up before I wrote the book. Whereas with Forgotten Realms, I had to just learn them because they were already there and then work within it. So, but, but as far as working with somebody else goes, the, I've done it for four books, the three with Gino and now the one with Erica. Um, in these situations, it's there are parts I want to jump in and actually do the writing on. And there are, but the voice I've always let the other author have the voice in the book. I did it with Gino because of a young adult. And he was like, I think he was in his early twenties when we wrote the book. So he was much more in tune. Now there were certain scenes in those books that I insisted on writing. Cause they were really scenes that had been in my books before that I wanted to tell from a different perspective, like Brunner crashing a flaming chariot onto a pirate ship, that type of thing. And then the other thing was battle scenes. Gino really wanted me to write the battle scenes because he didn't like writing battle scenes. <laughs> now, in this book, the, there were two reasons I got a co-writer on this book. Okay, mm-hmm. The first reason was I, I'm really busy. I've got a bunch of contracts and I'm trying to find that life balance. Three reasons. The second reason is I don't, I don't really know the YA market. I, I, I don't. The YA market's very different. And the way you write the books is very different. And the third reason is Erica is a dear, dear, dear friend of mine. And I know she's a good writer. So we worked many, many hours behind the scenes. She did most of the writing. I did editing on the writing. We argued. We didn't argue. Always got along. Respect each other tremendously. Happy with the end product. Yeah. But when Erica and Kristen, the editor, got on the phone and I got on the phone, that's when I realized I was out of my league with this young adult stuff. <laughs> and the, th- the 
we have to have this in the book. Oh, we have to have that. And I'm like, I don't want that in the book. And they're like, oh no, you have to have that in the book. And here's why. And they're going, oh, I love it. This, this, this. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I give up. It's yours. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very different experience. Do you, do you think it kind of maybe brought out some of your own kind of, I don't know, uh, authorial shortcomings where you, you kind of had the realizations of, oh, this is not my territory. And oh, yeah. The word is humbling. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it, it, I mean, I, it was it was a really fun experience working with Erica. Um, I had worked with her before a comic. She and Gino and I did a comic for Heavy Metal Magazine. I don't think they ever published it because the magazine bounced around a bunch of places. But I had worked with her before. But really, when Erica left G4 TV to become a writer, she sent me her first book. And I read it and I was like, I called her up and I said, this is really good, but do you want really want me to edit this? And she goes, oh, I'd love any input. And I ripped her apart because that was my job. Yeah. But it was all gentle and it was all honest. And she immediately saw what I was doing. And then she finished, and I was like, this is, I got the book back, and she actually listened to what I said. And I'm like, this is fantastic. Not because of what I said. Because all I said was trying to bring out more of her. I wasn't trying to put me into her book. Mm-hmm. I, was, I could see where she was, as most authors are, where she was like shying away from something that needed to be told or needed to be done. And I was, just, I was acting like an editor, and I was just pulling it out of her. And I loved the book, Game of Shadows. When she, you know, I was like, nailed it. And I said, okay, where are you sending it? Because I'm calling the editor and saying, you've got to read this. Because um, she's just a, she's got a ton of talent. And she knows, she knows YA the way I know adult yeah. fans. And it's very different. Well, and she, she has a very good grip on, uh, not just on constructive criticism, but kind of coming from that TV background where she was in that position of yeah. kind of trying to balance the line between the business and the creative. Much more than I am. And, and I think that that is... It, it lends kind of a, a certain it's it's a talent and a and a skill set that lends a certain brilliance to writing when it's applied correctly. And I I think I love that from her. She understands the collaborative. Did you ever see Sound City? The Dave Grohl. No. Dave Grohl did a documentary about us uh, about a place called Sound City, and it's like where Fleetwood Mac cut the Fleetwood Mac and Rumors album, and uh, Nevermind was done there. That's that's where Nirvana exploded because they went in there and used that soundboard they had. But at the end of that documentary, Dave Grohl brings in different artists. They play off each other. They're jamming. Yeah. And like Paul McCartney shows up. Stevie Nicks shows up. Tom Petty shows. It's amazing. Yeah. It's just, it's Grohl. It's amazing. He's fantastic. And and it, to me, it's like the perfect creative process. Now, I get that when I go to, to Wizards of the Coast and I sit around the table. I remember when we were doing the Sundering and here I am sitting with Rich Baker and Phil Athens and Troy Denning and Richard Lee Byers and, you know, Aaron Evans, and Paul Kemp. And, and we're like beating each other up and, and just this, Oh yeah. And Rich Baker and I would have like these long drawn out fights across the table. And when we were done. It was like, we needed a cigarette, man. It was awesome. <laughs> it was just the best. Like, and now, now I go up there and I, when I was consulting and I'm sitting with Chris Perkins and I'm sitting with Mike Merles. And I'm sitting with uh, Richard Withers, not anymore, but this is a few years ago. And I'm sitting with Adam and, and Kate and we all get in the room and we beat each other up and we bounce ideas off each other. And then I come home and I can't stop writing. But for me, the writing part was get the hell away from me. It's mine. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm Gollum with the ring, baby. You come in here, I'm going to kill you. It's mine. Gino found that out <laughs> the hard way, <laughs> which is why I let Gino and Erica take the lead on the books, because otherwise I would have killed them. Yeah. Erica understands the collabor- collaboration of the final product, mm-hmm. whereas I'm very hot, hot on the collaboration to get to the final product. The final product, though, when I do the execution, then I'm like James Cameron directing, right? It's like, no, he's going to stand in this exact spot. And if you move him, I'm going to drop that rock on him, kill the main character, and it's going to be up to you to make a new one. Stop it. You know, control freak. It's my work. I do that with my wife where, where I, we like do a lot of back and forth when I'm planning something. Oh God, I don't want my wife near my book. Uh, no, no, we, so, but once the writing starts, I like, unless I go ask her to let me talk something out with her, <laughs> I don't want any more input. And, and she'll occasionally come and say, Oh, I had this idea of something we were talking about the other day. And I'm like, no, I'm already in it back off. I, I'll, I'll come and talk to you later. I've got to do this now. Well, Diane will know when I'm at one of those spots where I'm just nodded. 
Yeah. Yep. Because I'll be at the coffee. I'll be at the coffee. We have a coffee maker and I'm trying to make coffee. And as I push the button to put the milk in the coffee, it says empty grounds container. And normally I'm like, son of a gun, you know, I got to take everything off. I'm to open it up, empty the grounds container. And then I just like smash the wall. Son of a bitch. And she goes, all right, let's talk about it. I'm like, no, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that part when your your creative frustration leaks into your relationship can be uh, can be fraught, I've noticed. You know, you know how you can tell that I just solved the riddle on the book I'm writing? I'm writing a Demon Wars book right now. You can tell I just solved the riddle because I got a haircut. <laughs> My hair was like... <laughs> and you finally were like, oh, I should probably groom myself. No, Diane was like, go get a haircut. She's been telling me for like two weeks. I'm like, no, leave me alone. I don't have time. Go get a haircut. I can't. I can't. You're putting a spoon in my hand that I don't have to spend. Leave me alone. I need to sit there and write. Leave me alone. And she said, go get a haircut. You're going to be in front. Erica's coming out next week, and you two are going to be in front of people at a book signing. And you're doing podcasts, and there might be some of the video. And you must, and I don't want that out there because you'll look like a shaggy dog, and it'll be out there forever. And da da da. I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> but now I've solved the problem. So I went and got a haircut. <laughs> That's how you know. Yeah. So you know. You've got that extra spoon. You also know I'm at the end of a book because I gained 10 pounds. It's just a rule. <laughs> it goes back and forth. Oh, yeah. You die well, nope, I finished the book. <laughs> well, I, I've been keeping you quite a long time, but I, I like to end this podcast by asking each guest what the last meal that they still think about is. What's the last meal that blew your mind? Oh, that's easy. The last meal that blew my mind. My We've gone vegan, mostly vegetarian, almost always, mm -hmm. occasional chicken and fish for health reasons. I watched this documentary called Net the Game Changers on Netflix. Everybody go watch this. All we grew up learning about food is, you know, is being challenged with good science behind it. So she made this impossible meat, you know, the, the sub meat substitute pot pie. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to be any good. But Diane's an amazing cook. And she knew exactly what spices to put in. Oh, my God. Did I overeat that night? It was just mind-blowingly good. And she's done that several times. She's made, she made vegetarian crab cakes that everybody who ate them said were, were the vegan crab cakes, were the best crab cakes they ever had. That's very impressive. My sister made, they call it eat loaf instead of meat loaf. You won't know the difference. It makes the best sandwiches the next day cold, too. It's like so... That's what's blown my mind is is being able to go and do different things with food and really good. I I uh, grilled up some. I think it was Beyond Burgers, uh, Beyond Meat. Uh, I grilled up some of those. It was my first time trying some about a month ago, and I I was genuinely impressed. They they were not great the next day. Uh, the leftovers. Some people like Beyond. Some people like Impossible because one of them uses pea extract. The other uses soy. Uh -huh. And sometimes the pea extract's a little too strong for people. And so it goes back and forth. Beyond sausages are amazing. I'll have to give those a go. The the Beyond Italian sausages taste like Italian sausages. They're really great. And then you know, but for me, it's like it's funny because we do we do Impossible burgers, but I still love the Morningstar Farms black bean burgers. They're so tasty. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't think I've tried those before. I, I'll. I'll give them a look. Oh, they're fabulous. They're fabulous. Yeah, I've been. I've been trying to be a little bit more on top of myself about reducing meat consumption. Um, you know, both health and you know environmental reasons. Uh, but you know, I'd. I'd love to. I, I'd like to be bring more of those options into my rotation. Well, for me, there's three things: environmental reasons. I just love animals. I don't want to eat animals if I don't have to. I mean, I'm not super strict on it and i have hunters in the family and god bless them uh, they, they do a, they do a big service because it has to be done and i don't i don't have any problem i'm not i'm not trying to make a statement here okay i don't want to get in the middle of another fight thank you very much for me personally <laughs> i don't think i could shoot a deer mm -hmm. um or kill a cow i just don't think i could certainly not a pig so i couldn't um but that's me that's just who i am i don't that's not a judgment call on anyone else i want to be clear about that now <laughs> Uh, the second reason is environmental, because yeah. But the the main reason I did it was health. I'm in my 60s now. I want to play softball for another 10, 15 years. I want to be able to chase my kids around the rink in hockey. I want to be able to you know enjoy my life traveling. And I am convinced that this diet is better for me physically, for my heart. Mm -hmm. My dad died 
I'm not much younger than my dad was when he died of a heart attack. But they think it was a heart attack. And then they just called it old age because people didn't live as long as they do now. But my, I, I am determined to do the, to feel the best I can, to stay the healthiest I can, to do the best I can for, for being healthy and enjoying life as long as I can. Yeah. And to me, this seems like the, the answer. I, I don't think it's an accident that Tom Brady is a vegan and he's playing the way he is at the age of 44 years old. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, I, you know, that's a that's a benefit for all of us because then we get books for longer, too. Well, it's not it's not helping my brain any. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. No, that's fantastic. But, hey, thank you so much for coming, taking some time. I know you're super busy uh, for just chatting with me. This is really freaking fantastic. Yeah, my pleasure. This was fun. This was fun. My, my assistant just left and he set up my batting machine. I have a batting cage out back. Oh, but we have to drag the machine out and set it up. And I've still got about 45 minutes before the sun goes down. So I think I'm going to go whack some softballs around. That sounds awesome. Well, I will let you go do that. Some people like golf balls. I hit softballs, baby. Uh, that, that's really great. I, I love it. That was epic fantasy author R.A. Salvatore. Thanks again to Bob for taking the time to chat. His new book, Color of Dragons, is available now from your favorite bookseller. You can also listen to my conversation with Bob's co-author, Erica Lewis, at your leisure. You can find links to Bob's social media and some of his books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Special thanks to Kyle Anderson for his backering on Patreon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.